This season of The Francis Effect is sponsored in part by Franciscan Media, seeking to spread the gospel in the spirit of St. Francis. Franciscan Media publishes books by authors like Richard Rohr, Heather King, and Ronald Rollheiser. Get 25% off your first order in the store when you use the code FRANCISFX, that's Francis, the letter F, and the letter X, at franciscanmedia.org. That's franciscanmedia.org. This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Hello, and welcome to the Francis Effect Podcast. We are in the middle of Season 5. My name is David Dalt, and I host a radio show called Things Not Seen about culture and faith. I teach at Loyola University Chicago's Institute for Pastoral Studies, and I write a monthly column for St. Anthony Messenger Magazine. I'm here with my friend Dan Horan. He's a Franciscan friar of Holy Name Province in New York. He's an assistant professor of systematic theology and spirituality at the Catholic Theological Union here in Chicago, and he's a columnist for the National Catholic Reporter. Every couple of weeks, we get together to bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. Dan, as always, it's great to see you. Welcome. (laughs) Buongiorno. <laughs> we also have special bonus segments for all you friends of Frank who support the show by donating each month on Patreon. Every couple of weeks, we put out a bit of bonus audio, an extended discussion, or an interview. If you'd like to hear them, you can. Go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod and become a monthly supporter of the show. Please follow us on Twitter and Facebook at francisfxpod. That's Francis, the letters F and X, and the word pod. And if you want to send us a question or a comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing francis effectpod at gmail.com. That's effect spelled the English way, E-F-F-E-C-T. Today we're going to be talking about three topics. We're going to be talking about President Trump and the imbroglio over the Ukraine and possible impeachment. We're going to be talking about the Trump administration's uh, recent cap on immigration, and we're going to be talking about the Amazon Synod. So we will be getting into all of that in just a moment. But Dan, how are you? David, I'm well. I'm well. How are you? I'm doing I'm well, I think we're both October is a tough month. I'm working like 17-hour days right now, kind of getting up in the morning, getting the kids to to school, and then I teach at night starting at 7:30. And okay, so I and I, I get home at around 11 and then I'm wired and so I stay up and I get a little bit of work done and some writing done and I'm usually in bed by about 1 and then back up again. But I'm not. I'm not adding international travel to that mix, and you are. You have just gotten back from Rome. How was That's that? That's true. Um, it was very good. It was very good. I did uh, just the other day get back from from the Eternal City, from Rome. I was there for a conference of scholars of of Christian spirituality. And so lots of recognizable names to some people. Uh, Father Ron Rollheiser was there, for instance, moderating a session. And and then within the academic world of, of Christian spirituality, people will know the names of David Perrin from Canada and um, uh, Mary Froelich, a colleague of mine, uh, a really great Carmelite scholar. It so happens we are recording this episode on the, on the feast day of St. Therese, the Little Flower. And so shout out to our Carmelite friends. But it was very good. I, I was there for a little under a week. And one of the best things about having the opportunity, the responsibility, the need to, to travel as I do is that I'm able to reconnect with friends all over the place. So I was able to meet up with actually friends of, of our podcast, too. You know, Father Jim Martin happened to be over there um, for some meetings. It just came out yesterday, uh, official, the official word that one of the meetings he had was a private audience with Pope Francis at the Holy Father's request. And so that was very exciting. Met up with uh, a colleague in front of mine, Josh McElwee who is uh, the Vatican correspondent for NCR, and so many of our listeners will know his work, um, and, uh, and then to connect with other academic colleagues over the conference and spend a little bit of time in the Eternal City. Yeah, it was good. It was, it was nice to be there, um, nice to pray. It was unseasonably warm. Well, I think everything and everywhere is unseasonably warm now. Yeah, I think that's true. Yeah, global climate change was definitely being felt in the last week of September, um, and so that's, that was the thing. 
Yeah, like you, you know, October is a rough time as students realize too. You're you're really kind of full in in the semester, and and for us faculty members, as you're talking about those night classes, I'm I'm very fortunate this semester not to be teaching a night course, but I have the same experience you do. Our courses usually go from seven to nine forty-five, so seven to ten. But the truth is, you know, if you're up there that late at night and you're lecturing and you're you're leading a seminar, it's true you're wired and mm-hmm. and the adrenaline's going and you're excited and and pumped. And it takes hours to come down from that. So you can't just like go home at 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock and go to bed. Yeah. Sorry, students who <laughs> – I know it's difficult too to have night classes, but your poor, your poor faculty are exhausted too. <laughs> yes. Pity us, the poor faculty. Absolutely. <laughs> well, I, I mean, we are, we're continuing to uh, get settled in our new home, which we love, and, and that, is, that has been a blessing. As a small business owner, I'm in the midst of, you know, trying to track down – revenue streams and get people to pay invoices and things like that. And so uh, one of the disciplines I've been doing in the midst of all this busyness, because there's not enough time literally to worry, is I have been, uh, I've been thinking about the intercessions of Blessed Mary, our mother, who is also the untire of knots. And I've, I've written about that before, but I carry a, a, little, a little prayer card in my pocket, Mary Undoer of Knots. And I've been meditating a lot on what it means to let go and let God in that sense, to let Mary uh, intercede on our behalf to our our Creator, and to try and uh, to try and take some of the weight off my shoulders, because I, I can worry about anything. I can worry I can worry about the part of my hair, um, but especially when there's something like like income or livelihood at stake. And so, I, it has been a real discipline for me to be trying to let go of that anxiety. And I'm not always good at it, but it is helpful to have an infrastructure in the Catholic Church of a cloud of witnesses and powerful intercessors that we can appeal to at times when our anxiety gets high. Yeah, that's really good. You know, and and that's a particular devotion that I appreciate so much and didn't, I wasn't even aware of it until Pope Francis became Pope and he shared that, you know, that, um, Particular devotion to Mary, that that name for Mary is uh, is one of his favorites too, and I'm sure he's he's making a similar sort of intercessory prayer on a daily basis, given the state of what he has to face. So, so solidarity there for sure, absolutely. And and so, in the midst of all of this, you're still finding time to run. You're finding time for some <laughs> self care. All of that. Yeah, yeah. I, I was running in Rome, which was nice, um, and and I I run here. I, I shared with you before we went on air here that, um, and, and listeners may hear a scratchiness in my voice. I'm not sure if it's allergies or if it's just kind of vocal exhaustion from teaching all day yesterday after international travel and, you know, how that dries out your system and everything, or, or if I'm just coming down with a cold, which is also it's that time of year as well. So I'm probably not going to be running as much this week as I would ordinarily like to, but... You know, as Ecclesiastes and the birds once said, you know, for everything there's a season. One last thing I'll say about what's going on in, in, in my world is that last week my book with Orbis Books was released, uh, Catholicity and Emerging Personhood, a Contemporary Theological Anthropology. And uh, I'm very excited about that being out there. And unlike my previous academic monograph, which is also an excellent book, but you can't trust me because I'm obviously biased, but I hear good things. It's reviewed well. Um, it was published with a with a great academic publisher, but it was only available for the time being in hardcover at a very high list price, for which I have no responsibility. But Orbis, uh, the list price is much more affordable, so I feel like I, I can encourage people who are interested and have the means to to explore that or encourage the libraries to pick it up. Well, and we'll be talking about that on Things Not Seen soon as well, and I'm very I'm looking forward to that. Well, let's go ahead and get into the show. You're listening to The Francis Effect, and we'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Horan. I'm here with David Dalt. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss things in the world, politics, culture, current events, all from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. Okay, so uh, John Hershauer, one of William F. Buckley Jr. Fellows in political journalism over at the National Review, uh, big fans of our podcast, of course, says it has a whiff of impropriety. Hmm. What is he talking about? Meanwhile, Amber Phillips, writing over at the Washington Post, sees it as an indication that the Democrats have finally found some, quote, solid ground. Of course, we're talking about the July 25th phone call that President Donald Trump had with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky and a document submitted by an as yet unidentified whistleblower alleging that this phone call was part of a larger pattern of illegal behavior and cover ups. 
These allegations include President Trump exerting pressure over President Zelensky by threatening to withhold some $400 million in military aid. Apparently, if Ukraine wanted to see any of that money, they were going to have to provide some incriminating information about Hunter Biden, son of Democratic presidential candidate and former Vice President Joe Biden. As we are taping this segment, Trump attorney and former New York mayor and all-around television wacky personality Rudy Giuliani has been served with a subpoena to testify before a congressional committee. The House of Representatives is gearing up for a formal impeachment inquiry that now has the support of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. And Trump is calling all of it, surprise, surprise, a made-up witch hunt. David. What is going on here? Well, first of all, I mean, it, it's so hard to keep track of the loose ends. I'm afraid we're going to get hit by some shrapnel here. This has been unfolding in real time. And as you said just now, things are still happening, like unfolding as we speak. And so the, the latest that I have heard is exactly that, that Rudy Giuliani has been served with a subpoena, but also that there has been a spread of this problem, a spread of this connection to these nefarious activities to Bill Barr and to others who are who are part of the the kind of administration who are part of the administration but again I, I have difficulty saying that they're part of the administration because a lot of the people who are being implicated or who are being looked at right now are serving in temporary posts like as we've said before we're in a condition where we don't actually have a functioning governmental infrastructure at the highest levels we have we have major cabinet positions that have not been replaced and we we have very little in the way of what we would normally call governmental oversight within the executive branch and there has not been very good exercise of checks and balances from the other branches of government. And so there's a real kind of, I think, hunger right now for something like impeachment to be a mechanism to rein in executive power. How well it will work, I don't know, but I'd be interested in what you think. Uh, so Saturday Night Live is back. Okay. And, uh, you know, one of the things I, I did when I got back to the country Sunday afternoon, Sunday evening, was take a look at uh, what what aired the night before as I was, you know, flying back across the Atlantic. And there was a great sketch that included uh, Kenan Thompson, kind of the longest-running cast member of SNL. And you had uh, a bunch of others, including Woody Harrelson, who was the the host, kind of sitting around a kind of MSNBC or Fox News-like uh, Sunday morning table commenting on the latest, you know, all of the things we're talking about. And they kept the, the, the kind of joke was they kept saying, well, let's look back to what we said six months ago. And then there would be this kind of graphic and they would all change their jackets and ties and stuff. And they would come back and, you know, it's the same people in real time pretending to be six months earlier. And Kenan Thompson's character, again, the only African-American who's on this panel, he's sitting there and everyone's like, oh, yeah, this is definitely going to bring him down. Oh, yeah, this is oh, this is a new, new low. And, and everyone's being hyperbolic. And he every time goes. Nothing's going to happen. And I feel like that sketch and, and that character sort of in, in, encompasses uh, a collective and personal cynicism that on the one hand I think is, is fair and earned. You know, going back to, going back to the 2015-2016 primary and, and election, from the very moment that Donald Trump descended his escalator and talked about Mexicans as rapists, he's gotten away with everything. And part of it is, you know, I've heard a lot of political commentators talking about, you know, over the years now, and it's crazy to talk about it in terms of years, feels like centuries maybe, that one of the difficulties with President Trump and his cronies and, and corrupt associates is that a lot of their crimes are done in public view. So we're, we're not, we're used to a, a Nixonian cover-up. We're used to even a Clinton, you know, perjury in a, in a somewhat private deposition before Congress, like, you know, these kinds of things that happen behind the scenes and that people try to hide, we are not equipped to deal with public, either, you know, the Trump administration is completely stupid and just doing all their crimes publicly, or they're so clever to think, well, if we do this all publicly, we won't be held to account. So in, res in response to your question about, is anything going to happen? Is something, gonna, of course, I hope so. And I think there are good arguments, there are good reasons proffered by intelligent people that suggest that this is actually kind of categorically different. You know, these crimes that are being unveiled right now, part of it is that they have been attempted to be covered up and they would have been at various levels, including by Attorney General Barr and the Justice Department, the White House. 
and so forth. The New York Times yesterday in its daily podcast, The Daily, did a great in-depth kind of look at, you know, how the whistleblower process actually unfolded. I encourage our listeners to look at it. So it would have been last Monday's daily. So we can talk about that for sure. But I I mean, I I bring up the SNL thing to say that my initial, my gut reaction is one of numbness, that I I am not setting my hopes on this being any different than before. But I, I... very, very seriously hope that I'm wrong. Well, and, and just so that listeners are clear, it, it seems as if during this phone call, the pressure was put on Zelensky to get dirt on Hunter Biden in exchange for 400 million some odd dollars of international aid. Yeah. Well, that, okay. So that's, that's part of it. That's part of it. Maybe the most seemingly egregious part of it. But one of the things that uh, legal sc- scholars and commentators have been pointing out uh, is that it's it's the, the you know the quid pro quo that seems to be there is objectively corrupt, but it's also illegal to elicit the assistance for personal political benefit of a foreign you know a foreign body, foreign government, foreign president, foreign you know national, and so the fact that he is pursuing what is by all accounts a false. Uh, conspiracy theory about the Bidens and Ukraine and Joe Biden and, and the prosecutor and all this kind of stuff, which has been clearly debunked by reporting. Trump nevertheless buys this conspiracy theory and is soliciting the assistance of a foreign government to aid him personally by, you know, opening an investigation that will appear to lend credibility to the conspiracy theory. So, so I think even without the $400 million in aid, you know, without an, uh, an ostensible quid pro quo, it's still bad. Well, and in addition to that, there, and and so that's, that's a lever that allows us into the conversation, but then there are some activities around that, including the information about this being maneuvered to servers and being maneuvered to basically areas where it would not be available to public scrutiny. And that, that speaks to sort of a larger issue here that I was talking about at the top of our conversation. And that is that when we have a functioning government, we have a professional class of diplomats who are the proper channels for making kind of negotiations from nation to nation. And there is, there's a sense of protocol and propriety about that. This is not a card game in a back room, but it's being treated like a card game in a back room. And when, when the events in the back room get a little strange, you don't get to just shut the door of the back room and say, nothing to see here. All of this in a democracy should be, to some extent, available. Now, I recognize that for for purposes of national security, certain things need to stay obscure. But that being said, that's not not a blanket to allow people to simply do whatever they wish behind the scenes. And so, so it's not simply the four hundred million dollars. That is one aspect of a larger piece of kind of subverting the basic ideas of checks and balances of democracy. Those sorts of things, and you know. If we're going to be looking at this not only in a secular way, but also in a way of of sort of people who are concerned with the Catholic faith, there are questions here as well about what we what we have in terms of an obligation to uh, you shall not bear false witness. Those kinds of questions as well. So we can get into those pieces too. But I'd be interested in what you think. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. I was thinking something along similar lines. I mean, there are many many layers here. Uh, you know, you're mentioning the. The classified system, so that's an abuse of, you know, government regulatory processes, you know, not because there was anything threatening to national security in the conversation, but it was embarrassing personally and perhaps revelatory criminally for President Trump and his associates. And that's why they moved. I mean, that that is the definition of a cover-up was to try to hide that. So you're right to say that. So on the one hand, you're right, you know, going to the Ten Commandments, I mean, straightforwardly, you've got do not lie. I mean, there's, but but I think the Trump telling the truth train left a long, long time ago. And so, I mean, in terms of lying, that's, that is the name of the game. I mean, that's true of his surrogates too. I mean, Kellyanne Conway, I mean, <laughs> I don't know why I'm going back to Saturday Night Live so much in this conversation, but I'm reminded of a couple seasons ago, the, the SNL sketch uh, about Kellyanne Conway um, and, you know, the uh, Trump's previous, well, all of his press secretaries have just been bald-facedly lying. I mean, so that's that's an issue. You're right. Bearing false witness, that's something. I also think there's something you're you're hitting on here in terms of what is the role and function and the functioning of government. And, you know, this is something where the Catholic tradition, particularly of the last century, has has really contributed and we've really 
you know, have a lot to rely on, a lot to unpack, particularly, and this is a, a theme that we talk about often on this show, which is the, the role of the government's promotion and protection of the common good. And what we see here is an, an abuse of the purpose of government and government office for the aggrandizement and the benefit of an individual over the common good. You know, people are really being harmed here. And so one may, you know, there's any direction you turn, there are people being harmed by these actions and by these decisions. We can look over to the Ukraine and see that here's a country that's under great threat by its neighbor and, and former colonizer, you know, Russia, the former USSR. And so the kind of military assistance and financial assistance is is perhaps essential in part in keeping them part of the EU, keeping them uh, in a place that's secure for the millions of people who who live there and feel the neighboring threat. We can look back to the U.S. and see, well, just something as simple as the distraction uh, of, that's underway, you know, the, the corruption that is distracting from the regular operation of government that should be caring for people who are, are suffering. We, we forget because this is far more salacious and interesting, I think, for most people that there is a, still a border crisis where migrants, uh, families are being separated, people are being turned away, people are fleeing places of violence. We still have a crumbling infrastructure in this country. There's an issue of safety and security involved around that. There's the ever-present threats that are coming in from all sorts of places around the world as we are gearing up for a federal election and then local elections even next month. So, I mean, there's just so much going on that this, you know, it's, it's really, what's the word? It's really kind of a structural embodiment of sin beyond President Trump's personal sin, I well, might say. And, and I want to kind of take that in, in two quick directions. And you, you mentioned domestic, and I'll come back to that, but let's talk kind of foreign policy for a moment. So Massimo Fagioli from Villanova University has an article coming out in Commonweal that looks at the long history of Catholic international relations, particularly in connection to the United Nations. And one of the things that Fagioli says is that, you know, coming out of World War I, going into World War II, the, the Catholic hierarchy was very suspicious of international diplomacy because it felt that it should be the proper arbiter of international diplomacy. And in the 75 years since it has really come around to sort of embrace and understand that we're living in a different world where the stakes are much higher and that, that there is a place for a kind of professional class of diplomats. We ignore and we flout those protocols at our peril because there are nuclear weapons and weapons of mass destruction on the table. So we don't want the history of the last century to be our history in this century. That's a very important thing for us to be thinking of as Catholics in terms of, you know, we want to have people who are measured and sober in their approaches to negotiation. We don't want necessarily strong-arm tactics. We don't want necessarily to have bluffs and, and feints. Understanding that every negotiation involves, to some extent, some kind of gesture of manipulation. Nevertheless, we want to make sure that there are, for, for the sake of the innocent people on both sides, we want to make sure that these weapons and these kinds of forces, either forces of, of weaponry or forces of troops, are not being deployed. So we want to, I mean, it's just, it's important to be thinking about the sober way to approach our relationships to other nations. And your talk of personal gain then brings us back into the domestic front and that you know i keep thinking of this this passage from leviticus 19 you shall have a true scale and true weights an honest ephah and an honest hin i the lord am your god who brought you out of the land of egypt the notion that we would have an election that has a thumb on the scales and you know we live in chicago come on so the, there's there's a history of of rigging elections so it, it's a known activity but to the to the extent that we want as catholics to be part of a body politic that is honest. I mean, that's part of, of what we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be encouraging those around us to not be rigging the system, but instead to be bringing in the honest will of the people. That's an important part of our witness in the world and the way in which we proclaim that the Holy Spirit is operating. And so to me, it's th these, these two things are of a piece, like using diplomatic relations to further personal ends and then taking those personal ends to hoodwink an electorate or to pressure or to control the outcome of an election, all those things to me are of a piece and they're all, they all smell like sulfur to me. Yeah. I mean, there is a way in which there is a, a kind of 
Neronian, is that way to refer to, to an adjectival uh, spirit of Nero, this idea of, you know, personal gain and then disinterest or apathy about the consequences. And so there is a way in which, you know, I think there was an editorial or a column recently in the New York Times uh, in light of all of this uh, unveiling of, of uh, mismanagement and, and, and potential criminality by the Trump administration referring to the fact that this impeachment process, now that it's real, Trump feels particularly unhinged and can do whatever he wants. And so things are probably going to seem to get worse before they get better. And it strikes me that he is, if, if he was talented enough to play the fiddle, he'd be happy to do it as the rest of the country burns. So maybe that's a, a good place to leave it. <laughs> Not as hopeful as we might like, but it's reflective of the reality in which we find ourselves. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Francis Effect. Hello and welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt. I'm here with my friend Dan Horan. Every couple of weeks we get together to talk about news and politics through a lens of our shared Catholic faith. In the last episode, we talked about the fact that the Synod of Bishops for the Pan-Amazon region will take place in Rome later this month. That's created some controversy among vocal critics opposed to discussions of the possibility of ordaining married indigenous elders and exploring expanding leadership roles for women. But the seemingly controversial issues are not the only or even the primary topics on the Vatican's agenda. Now that the Senate has begun earlier this week, it's worthwhile to continue the discussion about the Senate and what to expect in the weeks ahead. What is not being discussed about the Senate agenda in the midst of the coverage of controversy? What, Dan, should we look out for in the coming weeks? Well, David, so very much. I think what we've been bearing witness to and what we, we talked about, and I think is important that we talked about it in the last episode, the conflation between what's going on in Germany, conspiracy theories, the vocal critics, including among some uh, cardinals who are very uncomfortable with the uh, contents of the Instrumentum Laboris, which is the agenda, the, the so-called working document going into this three-week-long Synod of Bishops. And as you mentioned, the two things that have, that have caught the kind of imagination and attention of religious and secular media and these critics has been the possibility of, you know, considering ordaining elder indigenous married men who are already community leaders, ecclesiastical leaders, they're catechists, they're people who are, are profound people of faith, would make wonderful presbyters, that's ministerial priests, and the only thing barring their ordination is that we have what's called a church discipline in, in the Roman tradition, in the Latin church, of mandatory celibacy for diocesan clergy. That is, as we talked about, that's not the case in the Eastern churches in communion with Rome. It's not the case for the Orthodox. Um, it's certainly not the case for our ecumenical brothers and sisters in other traditions. So that there, and there are exceptions, as we discussed as well, within the Roman church too. So that's something that has upset some people. And, and the possible consequence of a decision of exploring that or, or implementing that rightly gets a lot of attention. Also, the discussion of an expanding role for women leadership in the church is, is something that has upset some people because they're afraid it's a slippery slope to women's ordination, which is not part of the agenda. It's just recognizing that, that women are already playing a tremendously influential role, an important role, a role of uh, engagement and service and participation in the life of the church and yet have, practically speaking, no say, no concrete influence, no authority. So there, there are questions like that. Okay, so those are the controversial things. But I, here's my, my view. I think that there's something underway in this synod, at least as it's plotted out in the Instrumentum Laboris, that could make this one of the most important and influential Vatican meetings and meetings of bishops that we've seen in the modern era. And it's not because of these two items. Both of these items appear in paragraph, I think it's 129. There's 147 paragraphs in the document. Those things show up in one paragraph. The other 146 paragraphs are very, very telling and challenging and insp inspirational, in part because the work of the Synod began with actual listening sessions that were run by uh, kind of in the spirit of subsidiarity at the local level, indigenous groups of people, local churches, local communities in the pan-Amazonian region, so Brazil and uh, Bolivia and Peru and so forth. And there are a number of things that I'm happy to talk about that surfaced in that and has led, it has led the conversation about 
pastoral concerns and theological concerns in the global South. Well, and that's where we should maybe take a step back, both for this conversation and for the sake of our listeners. The Catholic Church has had a complex and not very rosy history with the, this region, and, and it has been implicated in colonialism. There was a document in 1971 called the Declaration of Barbados that sort of listed the ways in which missions have contributed to the exploitation of this region. And so I'm very heartened to hear that this process began with concerted listening and that what was heard was brought into the document, the Instrumentum Laboris itself, because that at least indicates a change in tone of approach to how for centuries the Catholic Church has come into this region. And so that's at least heartening. But then there's the question then of when we have this history— does the Catholic Church still have a role to play in this region? Do we have a responsibility to these people? Or is the best bet to simply acknowledge that history, to atone for it, and to simply pull back and let these people then take over their own course of, of decision-making? How, how would you see that playing out? Well, I think that last point is what is precisely so threatening to some Western European and North American white religious leaders, these, these cardinals like uh, Cardinal Müller, for instance, who is, is a German bishop who is threatened perhaps by the embrace of enculturation and subsidiarity that, you know, we're the ones, we in Rome, we in Germany, et cetera, et cetera, should be deciding these sorts of things. And what's notable about this document is that it does not begin there. It is not a top-down approach, but rather it is an inductive experience. And and let me just speak to what you raised about the Barbados document and about the history of colonization and complicity. That is explicitly named Many, many, many times. This is one of the things I find most striking about the Instrumentum Laboris. I mean, it's like night and day compared to the Instrumentum Laboris for the the Synod on Young People. Here, it's clear that the synodal organizers took very seriously the feedback that came up from the folks in the Pan-Amazon region. For instance, paragraph six of the Instrumentum Laboris, you know, it, it ends with the sentence in reference to these to the church's role in complicity, it says, for instance, such abuses wounded the communities and overshadowed the message of the good news. Christ was often proclaimed in convivence with the powers that exploited the resources and oppressed the populations. They do not hold back the, the painful truth. There's always, always an acknowledgement of the colonial enterprise that the church played a role in. And that's significant. I mean, it might not seem like a big deal to many of our listeners, but it's a tremendously big deal because we— we as as Catholic Christians are not accustomed to our leaders in the church, bishops, you know, synodal bodies like this, um, even bishops of Rome, popes, outrightly acknowledging wrongdoing and apologizing. You know, this has been a critique, for instance, of recent pontiffs. John Paul II made some efforts to acknowledge a history of anti-Semitism and supersessionism in the church and, and uh, revised, for instance, our Good Friday intercessions to to reflect better our uh, relationship and indebtedness and, and fraternity and sorority with our Jewish brothers and sisters. But there are a lot of things that we, we still haven't acknowledged and painfully over the last 20, 30 years, you know, we see this with the sex abuse crisis. So naming the colonial, so, so let me just add this, and then I'd be interested to hear more of what you think about this. Not only is there an acknowledgement of, of the colonial history and the church's complicity, but there is what I would call, from a scholarly perspective, a decided decolonial option that's embraced here. So it's acknowledging that there is a colonial logic, a way of thinking that has been imposed on peoples of the world that is basically a Eurocentric or Euro-North American perspective. And this document is saying our conversation ought not begin here. It should begin, in and it calls for enculturation, which is in keeping with the church's teaching since Vatican II, that, that the, the faith is enculturated, is expressed in the lives and the traditions of people. And there's also several times in the document a call for interculturality, which is not just tolerating multiculturalism that says, oh, well, there are these indigenous practices here, and there's this Spanish tradition here, and there's this Roman tradition there but rather how are they mutually enriching, mutually dialogical and maintain the integrity of, let's say, an indigenous cultural heritage while at the same time engaging and living out, you know, one's Catholic Christian faith too, that these do not have to be oppositional and one does not have to surrender as has previously been the case with the, the history of colonization, surrender their uh, ancestral heritage. 
Well, and so there's so much rich material there for us to dig into. Let me kind of reflect back part of what I heard in what you're saying and and where where my mind is going. So I think a lot about the church as a political force. And by the church, I mean specifically now the Catholic Church, the billion-plus members of the Catholic Church who are a legitimate political force in the world. When the, when the Pope or when the Catholic Church moves in a direction, that can have real impact. Now, when that political power is allied with those who are in positions of privilege, that can be a very devastating thing to the least of these among us or to the least of these in any nation. And so we see that in the history of colonialism. When that spirit is turned away from what I would call a a spirit of antichrist to a spirit of the gospel, to really be embracing that Matthew 25 kind of notion of we have an obligation to those who are in dire, vulnerable need in all parts of the world— world leaders get very nervous. And so, for example, President Bolsonaro in Brazil is incredibly nervous that the church would dare to criticize any of his political decisions. That's one of the things that I sort of hate love about the Catholic Church is that there's this tremendous possibility for political good, but so often in our in our history, and it sounds like the Instrumentum Laboris is naming that and maybe even beginning the process of repenting of that and making amends for that, there, there's also this history of us allying ourselves with the powerful to the detriment of those who are vulnerable in all parts of the world. And so the, I, I, I don't have a clear kind of, a, hey, this is great. I have, I'm really, really glad that the document is naming these things, but I'm also aware that there are still forces in the church that want to ally with what my friend David Dark calls the forces of Antichrist in the world, the forces that would work against the gospel proclamation that the world is for the creatures of God. Yeah, I think that that resistance is very strong. I should say this, it's very vocal among a minority. We got to kind of interrogate, where does this come from? And it comes from places of privilege and power. It comes from places where those who are upset at the very conversations, like you rightly named, whether it's the president of Brazil or whether it's European cardinals or whether it's, you know, these kind of blogging online, allegedly Catholic or self-describedly Catholic trolls like Church Militant or LifeSite News, um, whom, by the way, I literally ran into. I happened upon them, including Michael Voris and the president of the Lepanto Institute and some of these other kind of wacky conspiracy-laden cons- – conservative is an, is an insult to conservatives, but, you know, weird sort of uh, ecclesiastical <laughs> perspectival folks who were staging on uh, last Saturday um, a silent protest in front of St. Peter's Square. They're all lined up, fingering the rosary. and Oh, this was the prayer to St. Michael to exercise the demonic possession of the Vatican? Is that what I That's I'm... exactly right. Little did they realize that I was there, and so St. Michael did not kick me out. I think they would presume I would be part of this. And then two days later, uh, the Holy Father had a private audience with Father James Martin, who uh, they also really, really hate. So... I don't know, maybe maybe their prayer worked and actually the demonic forces that keep folks like Jim and myself and others, you know, away from some of the conversation uh, as they would desire, maybe it backfired on them. So thank you, St. Michael. But, um, you know, it's it's these sorts of folks who, you know, that that stunt that they did of, of standing in front of uh, St. Peter's Basilica and, and the square at the Vatican, you know, the whole sort of charade of this bespeaks, again, uh, an insecurity with the reality of the world as it actually is. And it is a kind of elitism. It is a kind of cultural superiority and xenophobia that is, you know, again, this colonial logic that they know better. You know, let me just read a passage here that comes from the Instrumentum Laboris. This is paragraph 76. And it it reads, the family in the Amazon has been a victim of colonialism in the past and neo-colonialism in the present. The imposition of a Western cultural model inculcated a certain contempt for the people and customs of the Amazon territory, even calling them, quote, savages or, quote, primitive. Today, the imposition of a Western extractivist economic model once again affects families by invading and destroying their lands, their cultures, and their lives, forcing them to emigrate to the cities and their peripheries. I think that paragraph aligned with the critics, you know, is very, very illuminating because critics like Church Militant and, and Cardinal Mueller and these others, these vocal critics of these conversations are viewing 
the women and men of the Amazon region and of the global south as, quote, savages and primitive, that they can't, they don't know anything. They don't know better. They don't understand the faith. We need to control the way things go. There's only one way. And again, there's the political implications that bring us back to some of the conversation we've had in previous episodes and even earlier in this episode. This idea that this extractivist economic model, that it's the global north and west that is going into places like the Amazon and felling trees and, and mining and extracting all sorts of natural resources that is disproportionately harming those who are on the peripheries, the indigenous populations and so forth, the poor. And as the document says, forcing them to emigrate to the cities and to other peripheries where they're not welcome. It's the same sort of people who are upset about this document are the same sort of people who also want to build the wall. Westerners acting like their resources are our birthright for the sake of our comfort and that the comfort of the people actually on the ground is an imposition upon us. I mean, that, that's the model that we're talking about. When we see this happening, when we, when we have that, I mean, again, I, you, you joke with me that I like the Catholic term subsidiarity. And, and my interpretation of subsidiarity is slightly non-technical. I believe that decision-making should rest closest to the level of those that are being affected by the decisions. Well, this is a classic example of my sort of non-technical view of subsidiarity, that, that too much and for too long this neocolonialist model has imposed a set of interests that benefit people who are absent from the consequences within that region. And we owe it to the people not only to let them have power over their lives and their livelihoods, but also in some way to make amends and to think seriously about the the kind of livelihood and lifestyle that we have here thousands of miles away that even in our even in our moments of comfort contribute to their discomfort. And this is classic John Woolman, the, the Quaker who thought a lot about the slave trade back in the day to the point where he refused to wear clothes that were dyed with the same because the dyes were being carried over on the same ships that carried slaves, so he just wore gray all the time. So, I mean, there are ways in which we can think about our comfort even on a day-to-day basis thousands of miles away to the extent of, you know, you're going to go and eat a cheap hamburger this afternoon for lunch. Well, if that's the case, think about just for a moment the provenance of that hamburger. Where did it come from and what was it that made that hamburger affordable to you? Is it truly a cheap hamburger or has the cost been put off on the backs of families in this region who have been dispossessed from their homes, their livelihood, their history uh, for the sake of cheap meat and cheap goods and, and convenience for us? Yeah, that's very, very important. I think that's good to bring it back to, you know, how does it affect us? What are the practices that we can better use to examine our conscience and make choice for others, for life, in living the gospel and so on? I would also add that, you know, because we're we're kind of out of time, I suppose, in this segment, just to say that, you know, in the coming weeks, there will be a lot of coverage when and if conversations about these two or more controversial subjects come up. But I want to encourage our listeners, um, if you have the time and interest, the Instrumentum Laboris is a very, it's not a super long document. It's very accessible. It's very, it's striking. It's unlike a lot of other Vatican documents. So I encourage you to check that out. The other thing I'll say is what's very hopeful to me about the agenda going in, and we'll see where the Spirit leads and how the bishops who are gathered follow or not follow the Spirit's guidance and direction but the potential is there, the, the agenda is there for us to really become what it is that we are, to kind of paraphrase St. Augustine, to become more the church that is the global church in various contexts and places. You know, I'm reminded of something that appears in Lumen Gentium, the church's dogmatic constitution on the church. It appears as well in the third Eucharistic prayer which is that through the Spirit, all who are scattered, all who are baptized and part of the same body of Christ in all their particular places are gathered and united together. And I think that this is a step possibly pastorally and theologically to get us to that, to become who it is that we actually are. And we're glad that you're gathered and united with us today listening to The Francis Effect. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Haran. I'm here with David Dalton. You know the routine. The Trump administration has recently announced some dramatic changes to the U.S. immigration policy. These are sweeping new strictures set to go into effect October 15th, so just in about a week's time. Following an analysis by columnist Bridget Schultz last month in The Washington Post, these new restrictions are based on the, quote, assumption that native-born American workers ought to be and largely are self-sufficient 
exceptional periods of hardship aside, and so immigrants should meet that standard too, unquote. But as Schultz points out, the restrictions are based on a faulty premise, going on to say, quote, Reliance on public benefits has become a fact of life for a large swath of American workers, immigrants, and non-immigrants alike, in part because of the inadequacy of many working-class jobs today, unquote. But White House spokesperson Ken Cuccinelli, who is acting director of U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, disagrees with this dire assessment. He went so far as to claim that the new rule clarifies the meaning of the famous Emma Lazarus poem on the Statue of Liberty. He told NPR last month that the motto is best summarized as, quote, Give me your tired and your poor who can stand on their own two feet and who will not become a public charge, end quote. It seems that rules changed like this are a reflection of the declared Trump strategy of building a border wall by other means than a physical barricade. David, what do you think? Well, I, so this ties into what we were saying in the last segment. There is a view in the West that those who are non-Western, and define that any way that you wish because that's a moving target, that somehow they are lesser than. They, they don't have the proper morals. They don't have the proper hygiene. They don't have the proper work ethic. And so Cuccinelli's clarification, and I'm scare quoting clarification, this notion that somehow the new Colossus poem that is there and quoted on the Statue of Liberty somehow only applies to productive white Westerners who could, by definition, be the only ones who are worthy of being allowed into our culture and into our country. That's an abomination to me. And, and it speaks of a type of bigotry and racism that goes deep. And it goes deep partly because we see this in the, in the heritage of the South. We see this in the, the South African practice of apartheid. And we see it today in our current immigration practices. Conservatives who are very interested in economic prosperity will work against their own economic prosperity in order to be bigots. And I'm not saying that about all conservatives, but I'm saying that it is a problem that we are facing again and again and again. We have this problem that those who wish to have cheap hamburgers and cheap labor would rather exercise their right to simply keep people away from their perception of their hands in the cookie jar. And I'm, clearly, I've got a lot of feelings about this. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's, it's evident to me, and it's, it's mind-boggling in many ways. I'll explain why in a moment. But it's so clear that there are so many people who are afraid of a white minority in the United States. That's so, and, and you, you hit the nail on the head in talking about its kind of inherent bigotry and racism, you know, this policy and those who support it. I cannot understand. There is no justification for, you know, these sorts of policies. Um, yeah, I'm actually, I, I have a lot of feelings about this too, as you do, but I'm kind of at a loss for words, believe it or not. You know, I'm, I'm almost, I, I don't know what to say, frankly. It just seems so, so apparently wrong. It's, it's so, so present. I think about, you know, what, how do we benefit? You, you rightly note that those who uh, support such policies are actually undermining their own kind of economic arguments because you need, if you want economic growth, you need a, a growing workforce, you need a growing, you know, spending <laughs> population, you need people. And interestingly enough, in the United States, certainly among those who identify as white, the families have decreased in terms of reproduction and uh, the, in a birth rate. And so we're on a way to looking a lot like Canada and, and Japan, where there are really, really low birth rates. The Canadians are a bit different from Japan in that the Canadians have had a traditionally broader and, and more capacious immigration policy, though that is up in the air now with Justin Trudeau's, the, the question around whether or not he's going to be able to be reelected as prime minister and, and so on and so forth. So there, there's a moment of transition there. I, I just couldn't agree more. This is evidently racist to me. It is it's defeatist in terms of how we advance our eco economic situation and our social, cultural, creative context as well. I just don't get it. Well, let me, let me analogize this to something kind of personal and that is, so imagine a family that has severe dysfunction and it's got, say, substance abuse and or violence that are happening and that there's a child in that situation. Imagine then that the child is, is beginning to act out and to have behavior problems and the child is also at certain points naming what's happening to other adults. I saw my parents hit each other or something like that. There's a reflex that makes the child the problem 
in that situation and makes somehow the child the thing that needs to be fixed. And the focus becomes, well, we need to make sure that the child is no longer telling these stories and making us look bad. Why am I using that analogy? We've talked on this show before about the fact that we have a 50-year-plus history of intervening in countries where brown people have resources that we want and or have a politics that we don't like. And we have destabilized those countries for our economic gain or for our political interest. And now these people are coming to our door and they're saying this situation has made our lives unmanageable and we need we need help and we need safety. And now instead of naming that history and making amends for that history and being adults about it, we are instead blaming, and I, I'm not trying to cast these, these persons who are refugees as children, but in the analogy, they are the vulnerable in the way that a child in a family is vulnerable. And they have not had the, the control in the way that a child in, in a family has not had control. And when you make the most powerless person in the situation, the locus of the problem that needs to be solved, and you don't look at your own power and convenience within the situation, that, that's, that's tantamount to a sinful embrace at that point. And we need to be thinking long and hard about the responsibility that we have to the least of these on our, on our shores and our doors who have been suffering as a result of our convenience for multiple decades, for generations. And that's, that's a responsibility that we need to name as Catholics, and partly because these are our baptized brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Like, they're, they're not foreign people. They are literally, as Catholics, our people, and we need to name that too. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. I think another thing to add, too, is that this new policy is not just, you know, you named rightly, I think, the animosity and the victim blaming and these sorts of things that have been evident toward migrants and refugees. This is a policy for those who, quote unquote, legally immigrate. And so this is, this is of course, refugees and asylum seekers, that's a legal process too. That's, there's nothing illegal about that. They have certain international and, and domestic rights to that that have been in, in another form of sinfulness and another form of uh, scandal. The U.S. administration right now has, has, you know, refused them that right. But this is also applying to those who file for, you know, it's basically it's, it's creating a smaller availability of, of visas and, and green cards and this sort of thing for folks who would go through the normal process. So those who have been waiting for months and years upon years for the opportunity who have gone through, as the same people who are proponents of this policy have been saying, you know, go through the legal channels, go through the right way. You know, these are the folks that should be considered and admitted. Well, the ones who are are now being punished too. So I think, you know, it's an interesting analogy you bring up about the child, but it's, I think it's apt in all these ways in the, in the fact that, you know, folks are doing the right thing. You know, it's, it's somebody who's not done anything wrong. I think about something that uh, Matthew Sorens, who works at World Relief, once said, and he said, you know, we keep telling these immigrants to get in line, get in line, and we keep shutting down the line or closing the line. And in some cases, there is no line. And so when we talk about, you know, just go through the right channels, go through the right process, someone who you are talking to today who 15 years ago immigrated in a certain system with a certain set of hoops to jump through, if they speak about their experience, don't expect that that experience is the experience that's being had by people who are starting the process now or who are midway through the process now. The process keeps changing, and we keep acting like it's a static thing that's very easy. It's Byzantine even for people that have the money and the resources to hire the lawyers to do it legally. That is, again, a problem where if you keep moving the goal posts, and then you get mad at the person for not ever, you know, making a making the goal. This gets back to what I was saying earlier about Leviticus 19 and having an honest ephah and an honest hen. We've got our thumbs on the scales. Again, why? Because there's this narrative that we're having, and Cuccinelli is part of this narrative, that says that hardworking white Americans are the ones that always stand on their own two feet, never take welfare, and that they're decent and moral because they don't ever take a handout, and that these brown people coming in will be the ones to take a handout. First of all, that's false. We have a middle class in part because we had an aggressive welfare system towards the white middle class. And now that that other people who are not white are wanting to avail themselves of it, now we shut the doors, we move the goalposts, and we say, no, no, that's for us, not for you. And those that don't understand this history, just 
Google some things like the the creation of the white middle class, and you'll see the ways in which real estate and redlining and these other and mortgage benefits and all of these have been utilized and deployed through the years. So, I mean, and that's something that the Washington Post columnist Schutt points out that you know this it's a it's a myth that you know white working class people are the ones who lift them up lift themselves up from their bootstraps. There's a a disproportionate amount of uh, need for social welfare from that population, from that dem- demographic, too. The other thing I, I want to say, and here's my question to you, is that something I see whenever I post an article on my social media platforms or or make a comment about the need for you know welcoming the refugees and the asylum seekers and those who are going through other immigration processes, inevitably there will be people, presumably people of faith, people who identify as Catholic, who say, "Well, we can't just have open borders, and we can't just do this." And and a nation has a right to decide who comes in and this sort of thing. What do you say to people like that? Well, I I mean, first of all, let me say I'm not a bishop, and so no one has a requirement to listen. No, to no, my... no, no, no. I know, but this is our <laughs> this is our show, and I and, and you're my friend, and I'm putting you on the spot. What what do you th- what do you say to that? And then I I, I can you can throw the question to me. Yeah. Time. So I I will say that. And for the record, David is not a bishop. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, am I? Nobody has to listen to my authoritative opinion on this. But let me put it this way: capital moves very transparently across borders. We have set up situations where money for the benefit of the few can move without hindrance and, in fact, without, uh, without any kind of raising of alarms. Massive capital can move across borders very easily, but bodies can't. I'm against that kind of arrangement. I'm in favor of people being able to... Well, the, the church itself says that people have a right of migration. Mm-hmm. And so the right of migration... So is, is the United Nations. Yeah, and, and, yeah. and, and so in, in both those cases, people have a right to go to the places where their families will benefit and be safe. So in St. Peter's Square this past, a couple weeks ago, they unveiled this statue, this, this sculpture of a bunch of migrants in a lifeboat. And part of what I saw on social media was, yeah, if you have that many people in the lifeboat, the lifeboat will sink. So there was a whole notion of we have limited resources. And, you know, this is, this is the, the, the immigration rhetoric that we get a lot of times in these full-page ads in magazines like Harper's and The New Yorker, where they're like, well, we had a good immigration policy, but now we need to close the borders. I'm, I'm so against that kind of bigoted approach. If you have resources, if you have more than enough and to spare, again, it's Leviticus 19. You don't get to glean to the edges of your field. You leave part of that, you make part of that available to those who are sojourning among you. Okay, yeah. So I I think we're basically on the same page with this. You know, I I think of, um, I have a high school friend who is now an immigration attorney in New York and and just does wonderful work. And I see on Twitter, basically every day, he he kind of has this um, practice of of tweeting about the need for open borders. He's just like, the fact that we have these rigorous borders between nations, which are arbitrary. I mean, they are they are an exercise of colonial power. In effect, you know, people saying, this is ours, stay out. It's like the moat of, of medieval times. And so he has kind of a radical view about this, I would say, you know, and actually welcomes the descriptor or blame or, or critique for being somebody who is for open borders, which a lot of uh, Republicans and, and other kind of conservatives lobby at uh, the Democrats, where they're like, oh, you want open borders. His response is, yeah, yeah, actually I do. <laughs> and, you know, and there's kind of an intellectual consistency and honesty about that. I have to say, I'm not entirely sure what that means, but I like to think about, certainly from a Christian perspective, the importance of the possibility of that reality that, you know, you use the, the example of, of the fluidity of capital versus the, the kind of spatial realities of, of physical embodiment. You know, the people, we benefit, NAFTA is a great example of this. We in this country for at least two decades benefited tremendously on the consumer side of things f- from the physical capital of the workforce of places like Mexico for the car companies, for retail things, all this sort of stuff. And the money came to not everybody, to certain people on the northern side of the border. But we also lost in the long term all these jobs. You know, have this rampant unemployment. You have all the things that have followed. But what would it look like if we didn't have a strict border? And as you rightly say or suggest, you know, what would it look like 
for the people and money to move back and forth. There's, there's part of me that has, you know, I have a very soft spot in my heart for the European Union. There's something about the porosity that has worked despite Brexiteers and despite xenophobes and in places like Belgium and elsewhere. It, there is something very, very nice about that from my vantage point. And it's interesting that in the United States, we only have two contiguous national borders. They're big. It's not like the EU. But, you know, wouldn't it be interesting to, to try something like the North American Union and see what it's like, you know, U.S. and Canada kind of has this. The U.S., I mean, just has a disproportionate benefit. We can travel as U.S. citizens or permanent residents in the United States in and out of Canada and Mexico with no trouble. But we don't afford the same, you know, sort of uh, privilege to, to others. Well, and I would say if you ever have the opportunity to travel from Brownsville or McAllen mm-hmm. across the border and then try and cross back, don't use your privilege. Get in line. And get in line yeah. and and understand the experience of those who are trying to enter the country in a legal means, uh, who are not benefiting from the kind of halo that, that, you know, Americans have in that situation. And, 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 and people who are extra privileged like me, who have global entry. Yeah. So I, I don't have to get through the normal lines of, of, uh, you know, people, American citizens too. There's a faster way. Yeah. And so if you are, if you do take time and, and stand in that line, Talk to the people around you and talk about their, listen to their daily experience. If you have that opportunity, that would be eye-opening. I've done that. I'm, I'm not sure if you've done that, but, but years ago, not, not at the, in 2003, I was uh, in El Paso going through Ciudad Juarez in El Paso back and forth for a week and had something like that experience, but it's gotten far worse than it was then. Uh-huh. Yeah, and, and looking at the militarization and just the, the kind of brutish police power and, and not just in terms of, of actual violence, but in terms of just the threat of violence, the, the kind of spectacle of, of potential violence there. Uh, it's a very militarized space. And it's, it's interesting to see that that's what we think of as our, you know, the defense of our country instead of, let's quote Ronald Reagan, Oh, uh, you, know, uh, uh, you know, the shining city on a hill. You know, if we're a shining city on a hill, people are going to want to come to us. And I, believe, if, I believe Ronald Reagan plagiarized that from the Holy Spirit in sacred scripture. Thank yeah, you very much. Fair enough. But but even even with that, you know, if we're going to if we're going to say that about ourselves, if we're going to lift ourselves up and say, yeah, we we are the pinnacle that other people are aspiring to, then you have to expect that people will want to come and gather and will want to share share in and enjoy some of the resources that we are blessed with. But isn't that exactly what gets under the craw? Is that the expression? Under the craw of, of the critics of immigration policy and those who have, again, been the proponents to lower the cap and so forth, is that it, it's, it's juvenile selfishness. You know, and what you're describing is exactly right, that the, the, what we have is so wonderful and I don't want anyone else to have it. It's it, my country. It's my toy. It's, it's, you know, I want to make America mine again. If we hadn't been extracting capital and resources for three generations plus from these countries without fair compensation, if we hadn't been doing that and allowing the capital and the goods to come to us and the, and the, the benefits to come to us for us to now say, well, that was yours. We stole it, but now it's ours. Yeah, I see. So you're, you're making more of a reparational kind of claim, which is fair. I think it's, it's, all, good. it's all about reparations, baby. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Well, I don't disagree, but, but I also think there's, you know, I, what about the nations where we haven't had that kind of relationship I think your your argument makes a lot of sense reparationally and otherwise when we're talking about those, for instance, in Central America and South America and Mexico and in other parts of the global south in particular that have suffered the direct consequences or in the Middle East for that matter, Iraqis and Afghanis who, you know, who have been victimized by our – Kuwaitis for that matter, by our colonial enterprise. Yeah, what I mean, I, I think this is also should be something that includes, you know, Nigeria and uh, and Germany and and China. Or oh, something. come on, Nigeria, you have a cell phone. Do you know how much coltan we've extracted from Nigeria? Uh, it's fair enough. Yeah, it's like, yeah, it's like the lithium from Bolivia. Too. Yeah. No, no. I'm, my point is, yeah, that's a fair point. I, I'm just thinking about, you know, you you don't see the same sort of. Uh, at least that we, we kind of go back and forth in talking about the southern border. I don't know many Nigerians who are seeking asylum in, in El Paso, you know, at the border there. But fair point. I, I, my point 
is there are places around the globe where there are people who still want to partake in what you're describing as this great enterprise, this great experiment of of the Republic of the United States. And the response to that is not let's share it, which I think is the Christian call, promoting the common good and not withholding it for ourselves, but sharing it with others. And instead, it's this, I keep calling it a juvenile sort of reflex, which is it's my toy. I don't want to share it. In fact, I want to make sure that the condition of the possibility that others might benefit from it is decreased. Well, and so it it just brings me back to Leviticus 19. You and Leviticus 19. Can we talk about the best passage in Leviticus, which is, thou shall not suffer a witch to live. <laughs> why, why do you keep going to Leviticus 19? Why can't we talk about witches? Well, so we go to Leviticus 19 because Leviticus 19 ties us back and, and connects thematically to Deuteronomy 26. And Deuteronomy 26 says, my father was a fugitive, mm-hmm. an Aramean wandering in Egypt. Okay. And because of that reality, because you are the descendant of an immigrant, because you are the descendant of one who wandered without a home and without protection, you must make available to the strangers wandering in your land protection and resources, including the excess of your fields, including the safety of the marketplace by not putting your thumbs on the scales, including making sure that they don't have to turn their children into prostitutes in order to survive. And why do I keep going back to Leviticus 19? Because Leviticus 19 has all of those, and because there are so many people that want to just highlight one particular passage of Leviticus 19 and ignore all the rest of that. And that's why I keep going back to that today. Are you trying to suggest that I only want to talk about not, not letting witches live and that I'm only focused on—I'm just kidding. No, <laughs> I think you're, you're spot on. And I will say this. We don't have time today to talk about this, um, but it is something maybe to flag, which brings us back to the Amazon Synod, and that is— there's one population of people on this land that are, have not been people who have benefited from a process of immigration or, or being kidnapped from their native land and sold into chattel slavery against their will. And that is the indigenous peoples of, of this country, of North America, of this land, I should say, rather than country. North America, the First Nations people. And again, this also ties us back to what's going on on our southern border, that a lot of the folks who uh, are seeking asylum and, and refuge, you know, are, are people who are, if, if not exclusively, then at least partly tied to the indigenous communities of their local places, Guatemala and Mexico, El Salvador, and so forth. So I think there is, again, we're returning to kind of an issue of coloniality and and colonial logic, but also your point is well put that those of us, particularly those of us of European descent, you know, it's incumbent on us to recognize the Leviticus 19 and Deuteronomical kind of uh, awareness of what is, what we have benefited from and what we owe others. But I also don't want to lose sight of Native peoples uh, to North and, and South and Central America, as well as to those who have been brought here against their will, you know, stolen from their land and, and enslaved. So, you know, it's complicated. I think we could talk about this for another nine hours. Um, and so we, the good news is this is only episode three. You have five more coming this fall. David, as always, a pleasure to talk with you. And same with you, Dan. Francis Effect Podcast is produced by Sandberg Media. We recorded the show at the William Adams Studios here in beautiful Hyde Park on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. The opinions expressed on this program are our own and do not reflect the position of any of the institutions with which we might be affiliated. We have production space courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. They're not responsible for the content of this program, but they're wonderful folks, and you should look them up at zygoncenter.org. That's Z-Y-G-O-N center dot O-R-G. We also want to give a shout out to our friends at Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation. They're also not responsible for the content of this program, but they gave us their kind permission to use the name The Francis Effect, and we appreciate it. Check out their good work at saltandlighttv.org. We're supported by listeners like you. If you want to join us in this bold adventure, you can go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod. Not only do you get the warm satisfaction of a virtuous deed well done, but you also unlock bonus content from our episodes. Again, that's patreon.com slash francisfxpod. 
FXPod. We appreciate it very much. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at FrancisFXPod. That's Francis, the letters F and X, and the word pod. Likewise, our website is FrancisFXPod.com. And if you want to send us a question or comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing FrancisEffectPod at gmail.com. That's effect spelled the English way, E-F-F-E-C-T. If you're here for the first time, welcome. We've got a bunch of episodes behind us and five more coming this season. Thank you for listening.